Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations is as old as commerce itself. Family enterprises rarely make it beyond three generations for many reasons. Today, we hear the story of the Grossman family from Ben Grossman, who co-operates the business with his brother. They are fighting the shirt sleeves phenomenon with an interesting set of tools and intention. We get to hear the story of building the family business and creating the conditions for success in future generations. Ben went to Princeton University, and after college, Ben worked as a strategy consultant to Fortune 500 clients, as well as started and sold a sportswear and marketing firm. He went on to receive an MBA from Columbia Business School before taking the reins of the business with his brother. I'm excited to have him on. He has many lessons to impart for us. Welcome aboard, Ben. Fraser, thanks so much for having me today. Really appreciate it. Well, this is a treat for me because it's rare that we get to talk to a person who's sort of helping to shepherd a business, not only past the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves phenomenon, but is now onto the fourth generation and beyond. Maybe take us through a little bit about your background and how you got to sort of stewarding the business with your brother. Thanks again for having me and for your interest in our family business and our story. So Grossman Marketing Group was founded in 1910 by my great-grandfather, and I joined the business in 2006 out of business school. I went to Columbia Business School. Prior to that, after college, I spent some time in strategy consulting and started and sold a small company with a close friend. And when I was in business school, I thought about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I explored a number of different fields, venture capital, investment management, other startups, and ultimately I was most passionate about coming and joining my brother and my dad to become the second member of the fourth generation of our business, which at the time was 96 years old. And in going through a lot of change and flux in its industry to help steward the organization into the next generation. And I joined the business about 15 years ago. And now I run the business with my older brother, Dave. So what does Grossman Marketing Group do? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? What are your products and functions? We are a marketing services provider. Our largest business line is branded merchandise, like logo products. Some people call that swag. We were founded in 1910 as Massachusetts Envelope Company. So we still are very much in the printing industry and the print management space. We still certainly do plenty of envelopes and direct mail products, but over time those have become a smaller and smaller portion of our business as the branded merchandise business and the e-commerce services businesses have become the overwhelming majority of our business. We also have an internal graphic design agency and we help large companies with experiential marketing, banners and signage, and other sort of trade show booths. But the largest focus day-to-day is swag. So getting the business transitioned from previous generations, your father specifically, to you and your brother, sounds easy in concept. (laughs) As we know from dozens and dozens and probably hundreds of other experiences, that transition can be very difficult at times. Take us through a little bit about what the thought process was at your father's level is he was sort of trying to figure out 
how to move the ownership of the business to the next generation and then the operating of the business to the next generation. So as we started transitioning ownership of the business around 10, 11 years ago with some changes in tax law that made it easier to transition ownership in equity in a business and not trigger you know, any tax consequences in that moment, given the size of the transfers that we were making. And so he started transitioning some ownership in the business then, always making sure to potentially plan for our younger brother, Josh, who has decided not to join us in the business, and he has a fantastic career in his own right. But then from a management perspective, my brother and I were on the management team, sort of the executive committee of the business with our dad and several other non-family members as well. And then we sort of, it's sort of a unique situation. Our dad decided to run for state treasurer of Massachusetts in the election was in 2010. So we started running in 2009, summer of 09. I was three years into my time in the business. And he said to me and my brother, you know, look, if I win, I feel comfortable that the two of you will be able to handle it and handle running the company in my absence. And so the following year, January of 2010, my brother and I became co-presidents and our dad's title became chairman. He was largely out of the day-to-day while he was running for state treasurer. It was a you know, full-time job running for office. And he was elected in September, won the primary in September 2010, and then won the general election in November of 2010. And my brother and I joked around over time that the best succession plan money can't buy is when your dad gets 1.2 million votes and you get a promotion. <laughs> so, so that was a little bit of an anomaly. But from a succession planning perspective, our father made clear to the organization why he was doing what he was doing and why he felt comfortable with my brother Dave and I assuming the roles of co-president and why he was comfortable with that. By that point, my brother and I, I had already been at the business, let's call it four years. My brother had been at the business nine or 10 years. So we had been involved in a lot of the strategic thinking over the last decade. And between the two of us, we're very complementary. We're different people from a skill set perspective. I'm a little bit more analytical, and I think I focus more on some of the strategic planning of the organization. My brother is more, call it kinesthetic, really kind of operates more by the gut in the moment, but his gut is really spot on. And we balance each other out very well. He's a little more creative and has focused more on the customer delivery side of our business when I focus a little more on the strategic while still always, both of us always still focused on business development. You know, we have such a sales driven culture. We really have to both from a revenue perspective, as well as just a credibility perspective with the group. So it was clear to people that we had some experience and that we were going to continue the good of the company while, while trying to innovate for the future. And then when our father was elected in November of 2010 and was sworn in in January of 2011, my brother and I, we really wanted to foster an environment where different viewpoints were welcome because we felt like getting insight from our colleagues, regardless of whether or not they're members of the family, making them comfortable to sort of speak their mind and share their ideas would be crucial to innovation and creativity over time. So what we actually did 
was when our dad moved on, we decided a lot of people have sort of heard an HR review process for reviewing individual employees. It's called start, stop, continue, where you analyze John or Joan and you talk to their colleagues and people they work with to find out what John or Joan are not doing that they should start doing that would be beneficial to their performance, what they should stop doing that's sort of behavior that's potentially detrimental to their performance, and what should they continue doing to try to reinforce best practices. What we decided to do is flip that review process on its head and have all of our colleagues do a start, stop, continue review of Grossman Marketing Group. And so why we did that is we wanted to hear from everyone. We view that our people is sort of our most important asset and different colleagues who operate in different functions of the organization are much more aware of sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly than we are because they see things that we don't see. And we felt like hearing from them and trying to show them that we cared about what they were aware of and what they were working on and then trying to learn from that would be hugely beneficial. So what my brother and I did was we sent out a, a memo at the time to all of our colleagues and essentially the way we framed it, it went something like this. This is from my brother. I actually found the, the letter that we wrote 10 years ago. My brother wrote, Ben and I have spent a great deal of time, effort, and energy over the past few months discussing the strategic direction of Gross and Marketing Group, and we would love to have an in-depth conversation with each and every one of you, as you are the individuals who make this company run on a daily basis. Whether you have been here for one year or almost 40 years, you are each intimately involved with who we are, what we do, and how we do it, and therefore each have unique perspective to bring to bear on these important strategic decisions. And then we, we went on to explain that we wanted to plan individual meetings with every single person. And by individual, we meant my brother and I in a room with that person, with that other colleague. So the three of us. And we explained that each of these conversations were going to be private, that their names were not going to be attached to any of the feedback they provided so that they could feel comfortable sharing sensitive information. And what we explained to them is that once we, what we wrote is once we've conducted all these meetings, we're going to use your observations, comments, suggestions, et cetera, to help us craft a business plan for Gross and Marketing Group as we move into our, what was the time, 102nd year and beyond. And I have to say, I mean, some of the most beneficial ideas came from folks you would never expect. Some people came to the meetings with four pages of notes and some people came with very little. But the wonderful thing is we tried to create an environment where people felt comfortable sharing insights. And I still go back to the spreadsheet of ideas from those meetings 10 years ago, both to reflect back on what we've accomplished, but also on some things that we still have work to do on. Well, it's a terrific concept of you know, sort of human resources and corporate information gathering that I'm sure you take from that example and you're applying it with your next generation. I'm sure that's coming up as you're planning ahead. But before we go into that, I want to get back when you and your brother first came on to the business. And we talked before about something that I think is powerful, and that's establishing your credibility early. When you come onto a family business and you're part of the family, and that it's important for you to have some good early wins. Do you have any stories around that where that helped to build that credibility both within the business, but also with the broader community, maybe your customers, your vendors, that type of thing? 
When I first joined the business in 2006, I think probably the most impactful project that I did to prepare myself to enter the business was in the spring of my second year at Columbia Business School, I took a class with a professor, Frank Flynn, called Power and Influence. And he's since gone on to Stanford Business School. And the final project in that class, we were given the task of interviewing people in organizations that we were going into to try to understand how to build relationships and influence and understand sort of what the rules of the road were and what were best practices. So if you were going to do investment banking at JP Morgan, you would interview alumni from the business school who went to do investment banking at JP Morgan to understand the inner workings of that organization. For me, it was a little bit different going into a family business and having kind of one person in the fourth generation to interview. So what I did was I interviewed my brother and I also interviewed several other alums from Columbia who went into their family businesses and very different, diverse group of businesses, men and women in financial services, in industrial manufacturing and some other industries. And one of the best pieces of advice that I got from those conversations was figure out a way to generate revenue and sell because you'll immediately gain credibility in your organization. And a quote from an alum was sort of, you'll win friends, particularly with the rank and file, because you're going to be showing them that you're protecting their jobs by generating revenue. And from a credibility perspective, with the folks in sort of a frontline sales capacity, showing them that you actually can generate sales would be really critical. And then, of course, really nothing can Nothing can be more humbling sometimes than trying to generate revenue and and sell and generate leads and prospects. And you learn that you're going to fail a lot of times, and but you got to keep on getting up and dusting yourself off and finding ways to learn from those experiences and whether or not you lost out on that business because of price or relationship or creativity or some other way. But coming in and finding a way to generate revenue right away I'm really proud of the fact that I've never cost the company a dime since I joined the business 15 years ago, because I was fortunate that I generated some revenue pretty much right away within sort of a month or two and never really looked back from there. But, you know, another piece of credibility I got was, you know, come in and be humble, you know, put your head down, learn, become an expert in the business. So when you speak, you're right. I think a number of folks who come in as sort of the next generation of a business that's had some success. And these are sort of next gen family business professionals who might have had nice education, have been fortunate to have had a nice car or had some, you know, nice material possessions or gone on nice vacations. They come in and they they're the sort of the hot shot from from wherever they're coming from. And they want to immediately show what they know by telling what they know and speaking up right away. And the best and this advice I got from this person I spoke with was just be coming to be really humble and keep your head down and learn because coming into a family business as the next gen, people are going to be watching you. They're going to be observing how you comport yourself and carry yourself because these colleagues know that you are likely going to be there for a long time and early impressions matter. And one of the alums I spoke with, he said, look, I have a you know nice watch and I have some nice clothes, but when I show up at this workplace, and this is more of an industrial business, he said, I try not to 
I try not to be flashy because I want to make sure that people, they don't get distracted by those sort of material things, but they try to learn who I am as a person. And I think some of those early efforts to generate revenue and try to be as humble as I could and listen as much as I could early on were beneficial because, you know, again, what they, another sort of learning I got was you come in and show people that you care about them. You care about the team, you know, because what this particular gentleman said is everyone's agenda is themselves. People will be thinking, what's this guy going to do to make sure that I'm better off? And my goal in coming to the business was to show people that I was going to work really hard to try to make the company better and look for ways that we could continue to innovate over time and remain competitive because in the absence of that, ultimately we'd fall behind. And you know, one thing I've talked about in, in family business classes with other next gens is no matter how successful your, your family business has been over time, you can never take anything for granted because markets change and industries change. And if you don't continue to try to innovate and remain competitive in an ever increasingly competitive marketplace, you will get left behind. That's a guarantee. Right. Interestingly, it sounds like smooth sailing. It can't possibly be. What hasn't worked? What what frictions did you experience taking over the business? And maybe what would you have done differently? Or maybe a better way to put it is, is there anything you would have looked at from a different perspective and tried to incorporate either more viewpoints or otherwise take an initiative in a different direction? There's plenty that I'm sure we could have done better on. Early on, I will tell you, people didn't really, even though it was clear that my brother and I were were co-presidents of the company and we were in charge of the business, I think some people still looked at the two of us as, quote, the boys. And they sometimes people viewed us as sort of like they knew us as kids, so they might not have shown us the respect that someone, you know, the senior executive should probably be shown. You obviously have to earn respect, but I think some some people, there were certain people who I, I remember in particular kind of continue to sort of view us as the boys. And then I think others early on tried to play us off each other, almost like kids do with parents, like asking one of us our opinion on something. And if they didn't like the answer, maybe going to the other to try to and my brother and I, I don't, I don't think we did enough at the very beginning to minimize the sort of likelihood of that or potentially just be empathetic enough to colleagues who had been with the company since we were kids or possibly even before we were born, just being more sensitive to how they would feel about us and being sensitive to just what was on their mind. And so it's interesting, pre-COVID, when we were in the office every day, I was in my dad's old office and my brother was in our grandfather's old office. And my dad's old office was his uncle's old office. So at the time, two generations prior, it was two brothers, Edgar Grossman, our grandfather, and his older brother, Jerry. And my brother and I were in those two offices and there's a cutout sliding glass window between the two offices dating back 50 years ago. And, you know, we'd sort of yell back and forth at each other all the time. And so we we try to communicate in almost a real-time way and kind of almost have a mind meld and be aware of what each is doing. But I'd say that early on, we learned sort of the challenges of possibly not being 
fully informed what the other was doing or potentially making decisions in a silo. And we we worked that out pretty quickly. I mean, my brother and I, like I mentioned, we're very complimentary. We're very different people, but we get along really well because we don't have any sibling rivalry. Like we want the same thing. You know, his success is my success and vice versa. So if he wins a big piece of business or I do, it doesn't make the other one feel smaller. It makes us feel better because we know that our business is stronger. And in the absence of that sort of relationship dynamic, there's no way I would have joined the business because I turned down a full-time offer to go to Goldman Sachs and I had plenty of other opportunities to, you know, to have a successful career. I'm very fortunate to have been given the platform that I was given and the education that I received. But if I did not have confidence in the relationship with my brother going into it, I wouldn't have been interested in being in the business. And I think that's a challenge that other sort of next gens face that they either feel maybe there is a sibling rivalry or they feel like they're stronger and their other sibling is not. And they're going to have to almost carry that sibling. I'm fortunate that I have not had that feeling. Like he and I are very, very complimentary and we balance each other out quite well. Talk about the importance of outside viewpoints. You have sort of non-family board of director types. I'm sure you have non-family who are working in the business. How do you incorporate that and sort of keep the vision of the family ownership in one frame of mind as you're thinking about the business and incorporating the important parts of that outside information that you get from other people, either at the board level or at the executive level? So we don't have an outside advisory board. And I'll say that when you asked me sort of earlier on about lessons learned or things we could have done better, you know, that's something we've considered. I think the reason we don't have an outside advisory board is kind of because we've never really had one. And that's not a good reason. And I know that's not a good reason. And we've considered it. You know, we have on our management team, it's sort of balanced out between family members and non-family members. So we try to get outside viewpoints, but you know there is an inherent conflict of interest when the other members of the management team technically work for you. Will they speak truth to power? And will they tell you when they think you're doing something wrong? And I think over time, we've tried to create an environment where people are more comfortable doing that, but it's not the same, of course, as someone who's an outside advisor who has no conflicts of interest and is not biased and is just cares about the, the health of your business and sort of your success. And so we've considered it. I mean, we have outside advisors, just more informal. You know, I have some friends of mine who are in different fields who know our business and I've talked to them about it and I use them as sounding boards. We embarked on what would have been the largest M&A transaction ever in our company's history, which we ultimately didn't do. And I actually sat with that friend who has a private equity background quite extensively reviewing the financials and talking about sort of the, the pros and cons of the deal. And, and I mean, he dug into the numbers probably deeper than some sort of advisory board members would or could do normally, but that's just because he's a good friend of mine. It's something we've considered. I mean, we have outside advisors like accounting and legal, but they're ultimately not driving the bus with our business and not they're not the ones like when we do M&A transactions, our lawyers that we collaborate with, they're certainly trying to highlight potential legal issues. But from a business perspective, they're not going to tell us 
if the acquisition target is is a good target or not. So that would be potentially what an advisory board could do. So it's something we've, we've given thought to, but we're just not there yet. That's interesting. So you're at the point now, you've got a family of your own. You've got kids that are growing up in front of you and your brother does too. Is that right? Right. So I have two children, 10 and seven years old, and my brother has four children going from 16 years old all the way down to three. And you have a third sibling, right? We do have a third sibling. Yep. Josh, he went to Harvard and spent a number of years in McKinsey and now is a, in an executive role for a portfolio company of a large private equity firm and is enjoying what he's doing. We've certainly made him sort of welcome and exploring our business. It's ultimately never been something that he was as passionate about as we were, but you know, we certainly talked to him about the business and he's a very strategic thinker as well. Right. So as you're communicating with family and you're sort of establishing the blueprint or the guidelines for the next generation, what are you thinking about? Your kids are growing up, they're sort of going on to their different educational situations themselves, and they're going to be learning lots of different things. What do you envision for them? How do you want them to be a part of the family enterprise or if not the family enterprise like Josh, your brother, what are those values that are important to you? that have been inculcated through the family business that you want transmitted to that next generation? So our family, we've had a four-generation commitment to public service and to serving the greater good. And regardless of what our company becomes over time, or if the business is around for a fifth generation, or if there is a fifth generation who wants to be in the business, we want to make sure to pass on those values that have really been the true sort of like legacy that we've derived and, and inherited from previous generations of serving the community around you. Our dad talks about probably the most impactful and meaningful conversation he's ever had in his life was with his grandfather, Max, who was the founder of our business. He's told us that the last time he saw his grandfather, Max, alive was his senior year in high school. And they were having lunch, and this was in the winter of 1963, and our great-grandfather Max died that June, 63. And this is a quote that, you know, from our dad, he said, you know, Stephen, there were only four things I ever wanted to do with my life. I wanted to have a healthy family, educate my children, own my own business, and give something back to the community. And we've heard this story many times, and why our dad has said this was the most important conversation he ever had was because what he took away from that conversation was that our great-grandfather was saying that life was made up of three things, family, career, and community. And don't ever forget the community in which you live because healthy communities, you really have to invest back in them in order for them to survive and thrive. So it was really interesting when our my brother and I, when we took over the business in 2011, and we were trying to find a way to properly send, to announce the transaction or sort of the transition from our father to us, we came across a letter that the company had sent out in 1941. So 1941, 70 years prior, we found a letter that was announcing that 
our great-grandfather Max had made the difficult decision to leave his business and serve President Franklin D. Roosevelt as what was called a dollar-a-year man in the Office of Price Administration. Dollar-a-year men were, were business professionals primarily who were too old to serve in combat but wanted to use their skill sets to help with the war effort. So our, our great-grandfather was he worked under the Harvard economist John Kenneth Galbraith and was responsible in part for rationing of paper supplies across the country during the war effort. And this letter that was sent out in 1941, it started out, we are proud of the company we keep. And it talked about, you know, it's a pleasure and privilege to announce at this time that our president and general manager has been appointed by the president of the United States to serve full time in Washington in the Office of Price Administration at a dollar a year. Our treasurer, Edgar Grossman, who is, was my grandfather, will also serve his country by joining the armed forces of the nation on January 1. And so we found that letter, 70 years old, and my brother and I decided we wanted to, as a way to reinforce this commitment, this four-generation commitment to serve in the communities in which we operate in, both locally and nationally, and send our father off, we actually sent a mailing out to all of our customers, all of our prospects, all of our vendors, all of our other business partners and collaborators. And we included a copy of that 1941 letter and we sent the new letter dated 2011. And we started off as we were in 1941, we are still proud of the company we keep. So we were playing off that proud of the company we keep tagline from 1941. We gave some history in the letter of what the dollar year man was and what our great grandfather did and transitioning to our grandfather and our uncle. And what we wrote in the letter though, is we wrote the following because it sort of, it sort of highlights ultimately the bottom line of what our family sort of inheritance has been in terms of this legacy and this commitment to public service. My brother and I wrote, over the last 70 years and four generations, our family and colleagues have worked hard to serve the needs of our clients, friends, families, and communities, both locally and nationally. We are proud to announce that our father, Steve, who has been president of Massachusetts Envelope Company and Grossman Marketing Group for over 35 years, was sworn in last Wednesday as the treasurer and receiver general of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. As Max Grossman did 70 years ago, our father is leaving the company in, the, in our hands, those of his two sons. And this is what we kind of put in bold at the end. We pledge to you as brothers and partners that we will continue to service your needs as we have for over 100 years while doing our part for our community, both locally and nationally. It's just so powerful. And it addresses it addresses so many things, the past, the present, and the future of the company. And it, from a family perspective, the thing that I find powerful about it is that it communicates to future generations the why you're doing what you're doing. And I put the why in quotes. And I see it very often in a lot of different families where they never get to that. And it's different in many ways than a family statement. It's really more of a, it's a recounting of past history. And I find that to be a really cool and powerful piece of communication that you put forward there. No, thank you. And I'll say when we came across that 1941 letter during the transition planning stage when our dad was getting ready and he was in his, you know, he was moving on to the treasury. I mean, I've written about this before that my brother and I sort of felt chills, see, you know, seeing this letter 70 years before and sort of, we've sort of to paraphrase the, 
Nobel Prize winning Irish poet Seamus Haney, you know, we sort of felt we felt chill seeing, quote, history rhyme. I mean, it was just unbelievable to see that letter seven years prior and, you know, our great grandfather passing the business on to his two sons and leaving the business essentially for good to, you know, focus on public service. And that's what our dad's done. I mean, he when he was wrapping up a state treasurer, he ran unsuccessfully for governor in 2014. And after the governor's race in the fall of 2014, I, I asked him, I said, do you want to come back to the business? You know, you're more than welcome to come back. And he said to me, look, I'm no, I mean, we I want to continue focus on public service, but also we made a very smooth transition plan. And he admitted that he thought that if he came back to the business in a full-time capacity, it might be confusing and send mixed signals to our colleagues. So, I mean, he remains an advisor to us, but he's continued public service. Michael Porter from Harvard Business School founded a nonprofit in the mid-90s called Initiative for Competitive Inner City. It's all about helping inner city entrepreneurs get access to capital and management training. And my dad did a lot of that when he was treasurer of, of the Commonwealth of Mass. And so Michael Porter was really looking for a visionary CEO to take the organization national. And my dad has run that with Michael Porter serving as chair. And they've, they've taken a national and grown it a lot. And it's nice because at this stage in my dad's career, he's able to use his experience both in the small business sector, running our family business for 35 years, as well as in the public sector to try to bring economic justice to those who need it most. What a terrific example. And, and an interesting example of a senior member of a family who has charted out and put forward a structure for life after the business. I see that as a big problem with many family businesses that the the first or second, or in your case, I guess the third generation executives of the business retire and they don't they don't have something to work toward afterward. And that creates a source of conflict as well. I think it's, I don't know if you had sort of this overarching plan for that, but it certainly turned out well and it dovetailed nicely with the ethos of the family and the business that's been developed. It's worked out smoothly. And in some ways it seems like it was meant to be, but I will say, I mean, when I joined my family business in 2006, I joined both to partner with my brother as well as to partner with my dad. And, you know, three years later, he decided to run for treasurer. And so my dad overlapped for basically 25 years with our grandfather. They were essentially 50-50 business partners until our grandfather passed away. And so again, I didn't have that same opportunity because our dad moved on to public service. But you know, the difference is I obviously had my brother to, to be my partner. So when you look back and say kind of what could we have done differently, I'm sure that our business would look different if our dad had remained. And we benefited significantly from his strategic insight. And I mean, he'd seen many economic cycles come and go under his sort of administration. And my brother and I were sort of trying to learn it as we went. And it would have been nice, I'm sure, to have had more time with our dad. But it also, on the flip side, as you mentioned, those previous generation sort of patriarchs and matriarchs of family businesses are living longer now and may not be ready to let go. And I have a number of other sort of family business peers that I know. And one, I mean, they've looked at our succession plan sort of in awe of saying, wow, you took over your business at 30. I was 30 and my brother was 34. 
sort of in awe that that happened, that we had the opportunity, because for them, sometimes they face the complete opposite, that the patriarch or matriarch are living longer and they're not ready to let go. And they still remain in management into their 70s, 80s, and sometimes even 90s. It's almost like Prince Charles isn't, isn't, <laughs> isn't king because isn't Queen Elizabeth is still around and, and thriving. And so facing situations like that, how does the next generation kind of break in and make their mark when the patriarchs are still sort of in charge? And that's something that my dad never really had to wrestle with because, you know, he had an amazing business partnership with our grandfather, Edgar. And when, you know, when he came back, he had been in the business for a few years, left, spent some time at Goldman Sachs, and then came back and bought out our great uncle, Jerry, his uncle, and my great uncle to become 50-50 partners with our, with our grandfather. But when he came back, our grandfather made very clear, look, I'm not going to undercut you. And what you want to do is going to matter significantly and that, you know, essentially I'll go with what you decide on decisions. And they, they had an amazing partnership. I mean, our grandfather was just a fantastic salesperson and relationship manager, and he was beloved in our organization. And although I didn't get to overlap with him, I've had the privilege to be able to overlap with my grandmother, Shirley, his, our dad's mom, who's still alive and came in on a regular basis twice a week up through pretty much right before COVID helping with collections and, you know, being able to have lunch with my grandmother on a regular basis is something that, you know, most people don't have that privilege. And, and it was something that was really special to me. I've also been able to be in business with my two aunts, my dad's two sisters who, you know, served, you know, management or advisory roles to the business. And it's been nice to be able to draw from, you know, their perspective on kind of what got the business to today and reflect, you know, on the past, but also on, you know, knowing that I have family that I can trust to be able to bounce ideas off of who only want the best for me and want the best for the future of the business. You and your brother have your hands on the wheel of the business now, and it sounds like it's just an exciting time. What's happening in your world with Grossman Marketing? It sounds like you've got some transactions that have taken place. What is your strategy going forward? So we've made seven acquisitions of other businesses since my brother and I took over the business and some other sort of strategic investments in other companies as well. But you know, my brother and I looked at each other about 10 years ago and we said, look, we need to grow and not just growth for growth's sake, but you know, we have some good infrastructure internally. We have good management in place, but we need to either grow almost aqua hires or adding to our sales territories or adding to our capabilities. And we've made significant investments in e-commerce, but also just in other kind of bolt-on acquisitions of other companies, you know, whether or not the owners wanted to retire and monetize their asset and find a home for their people and their legacy, or just whether or not there was an opportunistic situation. And, you know, we've made a lot of relationships with business brokers and intermediaries and other business owners in our industries, making them aware that we exist and that we could become a good home for their business. And it's been a really good avenue for growth for us. We've tried to grow, of course, organically as well, but we feel like because we have infrastructure and we've invested a lot, especially in our middle management, 
of our business, we have the ability to onboard an acquisition target fairly seamlessly from HR and systems perspective, sales and other capacities. And I I oversee the M&A efforts for our business. And I feel really proud of the fact that when I talk to a prospective seller, that I can give them a list of every transaction we've done and say, look, any one of these sellers we've done a deal with, happy to put you in touch with any one of them. It's your choice who you'd like to talk to as a reference for us. And I can see that, you know, they feel immediately more comfortable that we're real, that we exist, that we're a known quantity. Although we weren't a known quantity from an MA perspective and especially in the promotional products business 10 years ago, we were certainly a known quantity in our industry just operating. But you know, we've leaned a lot on business brokers and other business owners through networking, but also on our suppliers. We treat our suppliers like gold. I mean, we try to treat them as well as we treat our clients in terms of paying them quickly, not fire drilling them unless they're actually as a fire, and just in general being transparent with them. And because we look, we're in the sales business too, and we don't like our time wasted and we don't want to waste our suppliers time either. And the nice thing is because we have such trusted vendor partners and they know that we're acquisitive, we get deal flow through them. And that's hugely valuable. And it's something that it's a core differentiator for us in our sort of M&A lead gen efforts. And what's been really satisfying is two of the most recent deals we did actually came from other business owners that we had bought their businesses. They brought us those deals. And the fact that they were willing to put themselves on the line and say that, hey, you should talk to Gross and Marketing Group because they're good people and they they treated me the right way. It's immensely gratifying to me and, and to my brother. And you know, we're continuing to aggressively pursue that. We again we're a little limited, I think, in terms of we operate, we tend to do deals out of working capital and I mean, our our deals are generally smaller in nature. We're not trying to risk the future of the business and potentially compromise our ability to get to year 112 and beyond by making a giant deal. But, you know, we're we're trying to be opportunistic and, and find good opportunities. And I mean, some of the best colleagues that we have, sort of most impactful colleagues that have joined the business over the last 10 plus years have come through acquisition. And they I mean, ultimately, they become our colleague and, you know, we try to introduce them to our organization. And in a COVID environment, it's been challenging to onboard the most recent acquisitions because we can't be in person. But, you know, ultimately, I'm hopeful that once we're sort of post this, this environment, we'll be able to get everyone in person and, you know, continue to grow and evolve. Like I said before, you must listen to the market and understand kind of what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are and try to address those and try to play to your strengths and address your weaknesses. And we're not perfect. I mean, we've probably other competitors have grown quicker and we've certainly, you know, missed out on other opportunities, but, you know, we feel proud of sort of where we are today. And, you know, we were really proud of the fact that our entire service team remained intact during COVID, which was very unusual in our industry. And it was because we were committed to our colleagues, you know, just trying to, they're the most important asset we have. And we wanted to make sure that we kept their institutional memory, but also when the inevitable uptick in demand happens and we're seeing bits and pieces of that now, that we'd be able to flex and get back to sort of full capacity 
rather than be struggling to hire like some other folks are right now. Ben, this has been a terrific story of tradition and innovation in the same package. Thank you very much for being on. How do we keep in touch with you? How do listeners find out more about the company and what you're doing from the writing front and whatever you're doing, advising other family businesses? Thanks again for having me, Fraser. It's been a fantastic conversation, opportunity to connect with you and share some of our learnings that hopefully are helpful to your listeners. Grossman Marketing Group, our website is grossmanmarketing.com. And I'm on Twitter at B-I Grossman. So B-I-G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N. And I also have some writings of mine and sort of a collection of information on our acquisitions on my website, bengrossman.info. And I'd love to hear from people. And if people have any feedback or any you know, suggestions or want to talk more about family business or sort of next-gen succession stories. I'm always, always open to that. I will have that information in the show notes as well. Ben, thank you very much for being on. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.